When the leaves turn brown, they come a tumbling down. Remember. Oh, it's autumn. There is a chill in the air and a chill in our podcast coffers. If you like Crisis Twin, consider donating a small monthly surcharge to the podcast that will help support the operating costs and just general good vibes of this enterprise. It's completely optional and you can donate as much or as little as you want, but much like Melissa Leo once said, consider stay warm. Hey girlies, welcome to Crisis Twink, the podcast where we ring the alarm about cultural emergencies. Whether it's a flop album, an insane headline, a problematic fave, or just something that needs to be urgently discussed or you'll die, we're going to revive it and make sure it gets the medical assistance it so desperately needs. My name is Drew Haskins, and I'm the only twink who can save a culture in crisis. It is Halloween week. And for a very special Halloween episode, I have two fan favorites. That's right, two fan favorites who are making their grand return to the pod after a uh, six, seven-month absence. Please (laughs) welcome Pierce Richter and Jack Mazio. Hi! Hi! Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. What a a spooktacular episode we have. (laughs) Yes, I'm excited. I feel bad, like, y'all are both in horror movie merch, and I I am the monster on this call. <laughs> like, I am truly nasty, but um, for the audience, please describe what y'all are wearing. Uh, well, I'm wearing a Stab t-shirt mm-hmm. from, famous from, um, or of Scream fame, you know, the movie with it. And I am wearing my Pearl X online ceramics collab that I got. <laughs> <laughs> I got in the middle of the mouthful. <laughs> I am, okay, I'm truly the last gay guy in America who hasn't seen Pearl, and I apologize for that. Um, That's okay. Fix it. <laughs> I mean, you, you still have time. I, I do feel as if I've seen almost the whole movie on Twitter, though, mm-hmm. like, I first a pretty like niche movie. I mean, I'm I think it made money actually, but like I feel like it has been memed so hard that like she I, I feel like the broader gen population does not really know what Pearl is, but like you would not know that if you were online. And there's been so many waves of it too. And it's I feel like we're just getting a new wave of the video with her saying, you're lying like over and over again and I feel like new clips keep surfacing like of this movie that's going to keep it going on forever which I love but honestly like I mean I'm all for the theatrical experience and like going to see things in theaters but you don't need to see this movie in the theater what do you think Pierce I I think that it definitely I don't I wouldn't say it needs to be seen in a theater but I would say like more so than x Oh yeah. Okay. Like it, like it's like very cinematic. Like it, it just. It, I mean the, the set pieces, the like the whole art direction. Like I and the the music. Like I, I think seeing it at, at like Music Box, 
like you kind of need yeah. to be honest I feel like my window passed me by for that but like I definitely will create the most music boxy experience I can within the comfort of my own home yeah, like it is such a failing of mine in 2022 that I have I have gone to maybe two movies in theaters the entire year which is bad though though one was with you jack when we went to go see cha-cha real smooth Mm -hmm. unexpectedly controversial film and i went to go see nope at amc river north which is like not a great theater for at least in my estimation it's not a great theater but like i i love nope at least did you guys see nope yeah i loved it yeah i thought it was so much fun like i think like bringing the big hollywood feature feature back in a way that's actually like interesting and like a movie with depth and like it was just beautiful and fun and yeah that is something that I think definitely demands a theater though I don't know how that would be watching at home for the first time no definitely not like I part of the appeal of that was we didn't see it in IMAX but like it was so loud and rumbly that like the seats were shaking and that was like perfect like in fact you felt like small in a movie that like really like benefits from you feeling kind of like small when you're watching it totally i'm surprised that like i've been starting to see the like oscar prognostications the gold derbies all that nope is not on the best picture list which i'm a little surprised by considering like the pedigree the response and like it's a better movie than most of the movies in the subcategory but it is a movie about making movies in Hollywood I think like with this Oscar conversation like I've I'm pretty caught up with a lot of them I've seen a lot of them already at this point um with stuff that comes out in the summer it's really hard to keep that ball rolling all the way through the entire rest of the season yeah I think we only really have room for so many movies that can do that and I think the one that's doing that is everything everywhere and I think that's kind of taking that spot that maybe like a nope would have taken in a previous year yeah totally yeah but hey they're still talking about Kiki so (laughs) Let's if get that ha- I would if that happens, I, I would just be so happy for her to be nominated, like next to Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh yeah. <laughs> that would that would be a great moment. I would settle for a Golden Globe even for Kiki. I know like the Golden Globes are, I mean, it's like with winning a participation trophy these days, but <laughs> I let's get her some hardware. Like she deserves everything. Like yeah. a few weeks ago, um when friend of the pod Michael Benjamin came on, we talked about how Kiki would be so good at doing like a late night show. I know she's done the daytime thing before, but like get her some sort of like real platform where she can do everything, like do it all. It's time. Totally. I don't really want to see someone go down with love late night though. Like I think she's too good for that. And I kind of want more for her. But like maybe- uh... She'd be good at it. She would be good at it. And I mean, she was great on um, whatever that daytime show she was on. Like she, she's a good interviewer and she gets people to like open up pretty well. But I know I get, I guess you're right. Like the late night format definitely seems like a dying one. Um, oh wait, speaking of late nights, Uh-oh. I think this is a really good segue <laughs> actually. Into, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, we, 
in in lieu of doing Ring the Alarm, the segment formerly known as Go Call the Govna, uh, we are going to talk about Midnight's, the new Taylor Swift album. Heard of it. Heard of it. Yeah. So <laughs> what do we think? Because I people were uh, up in arms. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with it, but I enjoy it. But I'm also not like quite a Swifty. I definitely am a fan and like have liked most of her albums, but I'm I'm not a Swifty. I'm not like I wasn't like really waiting for this album like yeah. a lot of people were. But I I'm I'm happy with it for what it is. Chat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're silent. Yeah. I can I can just feel it coming. Um so I didn't love Midnights. Um I don't know. I think like I'm generally positive on Taylor Swift. I think like she's released a lot of great stuff. I like a lot of her stuff. Every album for her typically has like a few really clunky moments. And this one, it didn't have like any standout like bad tracks, but I think like it's just the safest thing that she's done in years. And I think it's like, it didn't feel like she was taking any, like the same type of risks that she has been taking in recent memory. And I think like from like Folklore and Evermore, which I really loved and I think showed a lot of like maturity of her as an artist, I think what she's taken from that is made an album that's like actually really cohesive, like a pop album that's really cohesive from her for once and like is saying something and is like one concept that is fully fleshed out. But like the sound of it is really not all that interesting to me. I feel like it's been done so much better by so many other people. And lyrically is kind of, it just feels like a harken back to like Lover, which I find her like least successful moment. Yeah, I... So I think I'm a little bit more positive than both of y'all. I, when I was devising my album ranking this past weekend, this ended up smack dab in the middle for me. I think because it is so consistent all the way through for better or worse. Like, I think there's only one true clunker on the album and I'm including like the seven, um, the 3AM edition, the seven new tracks. Like Vigilante shit I think is terrible like uh, a, a like uh, up there with like the worst of the songs on lover and reputation which to me are her two worst but this definitely seems like like a refinement and an improvement on both of those though like the highs of lover are pretty high and to me they're only two like instant instant classics on which midnights are, which are i think anti-hero is perfect yeah, I love it too. Oh, he is shaking. That does head. not. Okay. No, it doesn't work. I don't know. Just <laughs> like with this sound too, I feel like going with synth pop, like you have to kind of lean into like your lyrics a little bit more. And that song is corny as hell. <laughs> so I don't think it's quite as corny as people are making it seem I do think okay the sexy baby line is shocking let's just get that out of the way it is not something you would expect to hear in a pop song written by someone who is widely in I think justifiably acclaimed as one of the best lyricists of our generation um shocking 
But like after a few listens, I was like, oh, I kind of get what she's saying. And I do feel like the monster on the hill. I feel like the monster on the hill right now. I mean, like it is, it is inarticulate, clunky, clumsy, instantly iconic. And I ask you this, is it any better or worse than surfboard? <laughs> In terms of like memetic impact, is it any better or worse? I think it's worse. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Um, I don't know. I just like, I feel like I wanted her to push herself a little further with this album. Like, I, I just felt like, I'm somebody who thinks that like Folklore and Evermore are kind of like a real culmination of like the work that she's been doing over her entire career. And I think it like, it felt a lot mature when she was coming from this third person perspective that she was working on with those albums and not mm -hmm. really talking about like the diary type of writing that she's used to doing. And I think with this album, she's kind of doing a lot of old hat. Like she's rehashing a lot of these same things that she's been talking about her whole career that she's done better on other songs. She's kind of like, the melodies like kind of pull from a lot of old songs as well, which like some would call some self-referential, which it is, but like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I like, I thought this would be a little bit more of an experimental push for her. Yeah, kind of, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Pierce. What, what you were kind of saying, I like the entire album, I think why I do like it, but also don't love it is because everything reminds me of something else that she's done before. Yeah. And and I can't necessarily even like, when I'm listening to it, like pinpoint, like, oh, this sounds like this. I'm sure there's a million TikToks that do, but no, yeah, that's just like how my every, I mean, I've listened to it a lot, like the past weekend and, and I'm just like, I've, I've heard, I've heard this before, but I do like it. I think I'm, I definitely agree with that. I think I agree with both of your assessments, honestly. I just, I really, there's something about the soundscapes to it. While samey as it is, like, she really needs to not work with Jack Antonoff to excess like this. Like, it, the, the seven new tracks are definitely a step up from half of the stuff that's on the actual album proper. And I think working with Aaron Dessner and a few other people, whoever, like, it just breaks it up a little bit. And like, when she does this kind of like pop meets root rock or roots rock stuff, like would have, could have, should have, it sounds good. Like, I think the problem with a lot of the album is that it does sound like Taylor singing over Bleachers songs. Totally. But I like that better than an actual Bleachers song. So, you know, there's the, the rub of all of it. I kind of... I don't put blame on Jack Antonoff in the same way that a lot of people do when their faves go down these routes. Um, I think like the problem with Taylor specifically is I feel like she's not really surrounded by anybody who's going to tell her no anymore. No. And she's not, she doesn't have people around here that are like pushing her artistically in cool directions. And I think her on her own, like her taste level is interesting. I think she could use like, it's not that it's Jack Antonoff specifically. I think she could just use a new collaborator to like push her in a direction. Yeah, totally. Who do you think that could be? Because my initial thought was Rostam. Yeah. We can get into the Carly, well, not to 
tease it for y'all, but we'll get into the Carly album a little bit later. But I think the best songs on the Carly album are the Rostam collaborations. And I think he would work very well with someone who, no offense to Carly, is a much better songwriter. No, I agree. I mean, my answer is always going to be Deb Hines. Like, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> I mean, always going to be my answer. I, I want everyone to work with him. And I think it could be like something fresh for her, you know? Yeah. Like, like she could still be very like definitive Taylor, but like with his flair. I don't know. Even someone like Ariel Rexshade, I'm definitely butchering that. Like, or even like if she worked more with the Heim sisters, like that would be great. I was kind of surprised they weren't on this one in any capacity. Yeah, it feels like their vibe. Like it feels like they would naturally fit in this like niche a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you think of how successfully Taylor hopped on gasoline from Wimpy, and it was great. Like, I I I think she is a natural fit for that kind of like 70s rock sound and maybe she'll go down that next next album i mean maybe she'll do like a full ways blood transformation into like <laughs> laurel canyon songstress but the one the one thing that i think is an unequivocal failure about the album is the concept like if you're going to bill it as a tale of 13 midnights it should be a tale of 13 midnights. And I saw the word outtakes album got bandied about a lot this weekend. And I think that has mostly to do with that. None of these songs really fit into this concept that she's outlined. Yeah, I, that's why I like, I was kind of looking for a little more clear distinction between these songs in order to like represent this concept that she's going for. Like if you're talking about these like 13 individual nights over the course of your life that were like really changing to who you are as a person. I kind of expect them to all go a little bit differently, especially all coming at different points in your life. And a lot of them kind of meld together. I mean, obviously they deal with different themes at like different points. Like the karma theme is definitely in the reputation era. And like, I don't know, some of the stuff harkens back to like speak now and red and stuff like that too. But just sonically, that's why I just wanted a little bit more. And I think, I think that's fair. Like if you're, it feels like she's been gone for a while, even though, you know, she's constantly re-releasing these like re-recorded albums. Um, when you do this original material, I think it's just the expectation is really high and 10 albums is a long time to go without repeating yourself. So it's not a shock that she did. Um, but I don't know. It's definitely time for a rethink. I agree with everyone on that. But I also like it. I don't know. I, it's pleasant. Yeah, no, it's, nice. I, it's, it's a good listen. Like, I'm not, I'm not, definitely not mad at it. She's just, like, not taking the risks that I feel like she thinks that she's taking. Yeah. Also, I, like, with the discourse today surrounding, like, Pitchfork rankings and, like, what this means with her album, I think it's, I don't know. I, I'm really frustrated that people think that like a seven out of 10 is a bad rating at this point because a seven out of 10 is fine. Like, oh yeah. Not all art should be a 10 out of 10. And like Pitchfork rarely even gives like nines to anything anymore. 
I think a seven is like very much fair, even a little bit generous for my opinion on this album. And I think people like sending this poor woman who wrote this review death threats is insane. Yeah, they, it is sort of a losing battle for Pitchfork to like review these popular albums like this because, and I mean, almost any, any media platform these days, like, but Pitchfork, obviously has that like cultural cachet right now there's no way to please the stands but you also have to feed into the press complex because not reviewing the taylor album is a ginormous missed opportunity for ad revenue seo click i whatever all that so you're gonna inherently throw someone to the wolves no matter what and I don't know. It just—it's not great that our economy is like this. I will say, I did not see a lot of Swifties out and about this album cycle compared to the re-releases. But maybe that's just because I've successfully like built a fortress around myself to not <laughs> to not deal with that. I think, like, honestly, the most the biggest pan review I saw, honest, most of the critical reviews I read were like pretty much universal acclaim around this album, which kind of surprised me. I expected like a little bit more pushback on it, but whatever. But the New York Times wrote a piece that kind of panned it a little bit. Yeah. But I think because it's behind a paywall, these <laughs> <laughs> weren't going to find it. Yeah. That's smart. I mean, if Pitchfork would never go behind a paywall, but like maybe, I mean, if they were going to do a Patreon tier or whatever for... Taylor reviews, BTS reviews, and like honestly, Charlie reviews at this point. <laughs> Maybe they should, you know? Maybe they should. Um, I think we should probably get into our central emergency of the week. So, Pierce, Jack, what are y'all rushing to the ER today? Well, it is, it, it tis the season. So, I think we need to talk about some blood and slashers a little bit yes yeah we are like gay people and gay people love halloween and are i don't know i feel like a lot of gay people i know are centrally connected by horror movies specifically they relate to them in a lot of ways i mean you can get into that discussion there's a lot of reasons why but i just like i think pierce and i both have really grasped onto slashers and I think slashers are really queer and fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're they're definitely, I mean, we're both like very big fans of horror in general, but I mean, slashers have just always like spoken to me in a way that like other subgenres of horror do not. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the attraction of it for y'all because this this is one of the weeks I love where I get to learn a little bit about something I've not really dipped my toe in all that much just because I am as listeners of pod know uh very squeamish and my horror taste usually tends to more the like the psychological horror kind of aspects so slashers I have a good base level for like the classics but I'm not super familiar with like I would say like the I'm not deep in the genre like y'all are Yeah, I mean, a lot of mine, like, comes from, I mean, I saw Scream at, like, a stupid young age. My parents Mm -hmm. didn't really, like, give a fuck about what I was watching, Um, as as long as it wasn't, like, sex-related. But if it was violent, it's... Yeah. (laughs) 
all good. <laughs> um, someone getting brutally murdered, all good. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I saw Scream when I was like seven and I've always been like obsessed with teen dramas, teen comedies, and it's just like a perfect combination of like the horror and the teen ensemble yeah. that I love. And it's just, it's just had a firm grip on my neck ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my entryway was kind of through, um, when I was growing up, like every time around Halloween when AMC would like marathon horror movies all mm-hmm. month, I would watch them a lot. Um, Cause again, my parents also didn't really care what I watched at all. Um, so I was watching like Child's Play when I was like six or seven years old and like getting nightmares about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think slashers, it like, it's a fun genre because like it aims both highbrow and lowbrow. Like there's a little bit of everything. The creativity really comes in like really creative ways we can think of things to do with the body and like how mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. die. It's <laughs> like, it's like that show a thousand ways to die, but like in different <laughs> forms. Yeah. I think like, um, especially something like Final Destination I used to love as a kid because mm-hmm. they go really like fucking off the walls. And like those movies had such high budgets too, that they were able to do these like really insane things with the human body that like put fears into people that still exist to this day. Like I'm still afraid of like tanning beds and driving behind. Oh yeah. Yeah. The special (laughs) effects in those movies are like unheard of in a horror movie. Like it like doesn't exist other than in that franchise. Yeah. They're fun. One of this, you mentioned the tanning bed. Like that is one of the (laughs) scariest things I can imagine. Like a burning alive is like a deep fear of mine and I will never get in a tanning bed because of that movie. Not that it would do me any good, but and they made it iconic. Like, (laughs) yeah, it really did. Like, I feel like it really stuck with everybody too of that generation who saw those movies. Mm -hmm. I also think, like, um, for queer, like specifically, like slashers and like the concept of a final girl is like really something that we can gleam onto. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, gay people again love women in cinema. Like, rooting (laughs) for like a really charismatic strong young woman and or older woman really depending on what movie or it's not always a woman either but in like it's fun to have like a hero to root for that you can kind of see yourself in who's like able to see it the picture a little bit more than everybody else in the movie or if not at least able to like survive the longest I don't know it's just really (laughs) There's a lot about Final Girls. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, they're amazing. <laughs> I don't remember who the author is who wrote like the definitive book about like the Final Girls or whatever, but like I had to read an excerpt of it in my intro to film studies class my freshman year of college. And like, it is so funny that gay guys latch on to like this especially in these older like 70s and 80s horror movies the like stereotypically like virginal plucky like co-ed who doesn't really have that many like defining traits I guess beyond just like she survives the longest but then you actually think about like you know people like Laurie Strode or Sidney Prescott who are like almost action heroes in a way 
these days. Not I, I like I want I kind of want to talk about the Lori Strode of it all in a minute, but like it is very interesting how like these are not necessarily like women with agency we're talking about here. It's not like I don't know who like this the cinema queen Lydia Tar. It's not Lydia Tar. I haven't seen it. Don't spoil it. But like the yeah, I mean it is very very different women. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know that I agree with that, that they don't have agency. I think, like, especially in the case of Sydney and Lori, like, they they do make their own decisions. And, like, sometimes they know that decision isn't the right one, but it's, like, still what they got to do, you know? Yeah. I only bring up Lori because I think I haven't really seen the new trilogy yet i have seen the i've seen the original obviously i've seen halloween resurrect in halloween resurrection the one with michelle williams <laughs> i it's kind of easy to forget in the original halloween like Lori's not really a badass like she's like a, a girl with a lot of personality and like determination to survive but like she her back is against the wall basically that whole movie and I think it's really interesting how these newer movies have retconned her into this kind of and I'm sure it's because of like trauma but like she's now this like survivalist icon yeah I think she started like the original Halloween movie is actually like my favorite horror movie I think in general Mm -hmm. um I think she kind of starts as like your every woman. She's just a babysitter. She's just somebody who like on Halloween went over to go and hang out with Kyle Richards for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think like over the course of the entire series of this movie is how she really like develops into a badass. Like it's not something that comes off the bat, but like, when these repeat occurrences occur and she's mm-hmm. constantly like in this war of good versus evil with Michael Myers. I think that's where it really develops. But I mean, I think you're right. In the first movie, she is just kind of like scared and acting like a regular person would. And like, obviously she's like a badass for surviving, but like, she's not like this like superhero as, or whatever she becomes in the last (laughs) movie. Yeah. Another interesting thing about her is that she's always like kind of different because all of the movies aren't connected. like I don't know if you know all of the like which ones do follow each other and which ones don't I'm pretty familiar and I also forgot to mention that I have also seen season of the witch which has nothing to do with the rest of the series but is a interesting movie in its own right and and it's kind of the idea that like John Carpenter and Deborah Hill like always wanted Halloween to be like they wanted it to be an anthology Mm -hmm. and then it yeah it kind of flopped and so they took a long break and then revisited Michael in 88 or whatever um but yeah it's because if you like look at Lori in um Halloween H2O it's like connected to two but it fully like ignores four and five where she's supposed to be dead but she is also supposed to be dead in it's duo, but like you find out she faked it. But in four oh, and five, I think that she's actually dead. 
I apologize. I realize I mixed up H2O and Resurrection, I think. Oh, it's okay. I mean, they're, they were back to back. And... Yeah. One has Michelle Williams and one has Tyra Banks. I do know that one. Correct. <laughs> so. both, both have Lori, but not for very long in Resurrection. Yeah. Um, I mean, Resurrection, I think, is very fun, but it's, it's definitely one of the very worst. What do you think of this new trilogy, David Gordon Greenification of Halloween? I think I'm a bigger fan than most people are, but especially if like ends has been very polarizing, whereas I feel like kills was not at all. Like most people would agree that that's like the worst of the three, like hands down, but I don't know. I really loved ends. I love the choices that they made with it. I, I think it makes sense in the Halloween canon. It like a lot of people I think are mad about the twist and all that, but it's like you there. I, I saw a TikTok of this girl that explained it really well, where she's like, you don't like it because you're like specifically a Michael Myers fan. You're not a Halloween fan. And if you were a true Halloween fan, you would appreciate this movie, but you just love Michael Myers. And that's why this movie didn't work for you. And I totally agree with that. Um, and like a uh, total side note, but like all of the like throwback stuff to season of the witch is so to me, like that, that just made me, like it from the beginning to be honest because that that movie has a lot of fans like it's definitely a cult classic yeah even within a franchise that has a lot of like cult classics yeah no I think I think especially like since these movies have come back or have come out too I think people have really revisited it Mm -hmm. and like realized oh it is like a fun standalone horror movie that didn't deserve like the hate that it got yeah so I watched a movie last night that I was shocked has spun off as much as it does. And that movie is Friday the 13th, <laughs> um, the original one. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why I made my final girl comment earlier is because the final girl in that movie is... Alice is a little, she's, she's no Lori. No. <laughs> she's, I mean, she, she really redeems herself in the end, but she is kind of just like. She's a final around. girl by happenstance for a lot of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah things exactly. definitely happen She's like in her. the right, she's, yeah. She I was, I was not really aware going into this Friday the 13th that Jason's not, like he is a character, but he's not really a character. In the original yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hello, do you remember uh the trivia game in Scream? <laughs> yeah, no, I like you're right. I just like I guess I just forgot. I don't know. I like I I knew that the mom was the killer or a killer, like a Scream 2-ish reference. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I just didn't find it very imaginative imaginative and like I get that it's a product of the budget and you know a lot of horror movies since then have made it look kind of tame in terms of like the gore and violence though I thought the axe through the face was like pretty gnarly and like a cool practical effect but 
yeah, I don't know. I not my I mean, it was literally a product capitalism. Like mm-hmm. it was it was created to make money like after the success of Halloween. Like Steve Steve Miner his name is the director he just like bought the rights to the name friday the 13th because he thought that it would be like a good horror movie name and then wrote it from there yeah and yeah and i think it was made on like a quarter of a million dollars or something yeah and then made back like 15 times that or something like i can see why they essentially churned out one a year for the next 10 years and then like it's still going today but yeah, I d- it definitely did not have the amount. Like when you think of Jason in comparison to Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger, pales in comparison. Yeah, totally. the concept really isn't there in the way that it is for a lot of the other horror movies. It's kind of just like we're going to throw a bunch of like hot kids in a camp and kill them off real quick. Yeah, and I think it gets it gets more fun. I don't know if it gets better as the series goes on um there's good moments I mean Friday the 13th has never really been my favorite series though I think like Jason is obviously like an iconic iconic villain and like Mm -hmm. there's fun lore as the story goes on but it's not it's not as like high concept again in the way that a lot of these other movies really are and it's not as like I mean even if we're just going from like summer camp to summer camp it's not as like gleefully batshit as sleepaway camp is which is like oh my god perfect i think oh, i yeah. love those movies have you seen the sequels too i have not seen the sequels i've only seen the first one but the well, first one is so good yeah and that i mean those take a totally different turn for the yeah. second and third ones too like it's still angela but new actress like very very campy like yeah yeah that but they're they're very fun you should go back and revisit those I'm definitely down because like the the first one is it is campy and silly and like I don't know all those kids actually seem like real kids like joking around like I feel like the improvisational quality of the movie actually works pretty well but like it it is also very scary and the kills are super inventive too like and and Judy is such like a girl icon yeah 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 Oh, I do kind of want to talk though is one of the worst like you don't really see it it's mostly off camera but her death in that yeah curling iron yeah horrible bad like I mean the misogyny or violence against women in these movies like it, you know I guess it's like part of the genre but it is like shocking sometimes like um like the original Hitcher have you guys seen that yeah that to me is like another like just so beyond horrifying i haven't seen that in a long time actually and embarrassingly i've probably seen the sophia bush one more (laughs) than more than i have get her her coins that's fine (laughs) i I know i i watched john tucker must die enough to like pay her rent every month so for sure yeah i think like there was like a really fun resurgence of slashers in the early 2000s or at least Mm -hmm. slasher remakes in general like (laughs) we saw there was a lot of weird like 
looks really cheap. We're going to throw together all of the names of the day in a movie real quick and just make as much money as we can. Yeah, I think yeah. like I suggested to you something like House of Wax, which is like a remix of like a weird 1930s movie. Yeah. We're just going to like throw Paris Hilton in this and like make a couple <laughs> coins. And it's stupid, but it's so much fun. So fun. And also super gross and gnarly too. Like the kills and that and just like like I always think about like the skin sliding off his face or whatever. Yeah. Like, and like Paris is Paris is also like pretty good in that movie. I think she's fun. She's and like fun and her her chase scene is like very iconic. Yeah. <laughs> very iconic. I watched the original House of Wax during like early pandemic and I know like none of these like 30s movies are actually scary these days. Like I mean how could they be compared to like the horrors of the modern age but it is it is so silly like i think like gay british guys aren't scary and that's kind of like all these these old horror movies are just like like guys queening out the cis zone but like with blood (laughs) like that's kind of what it is and i guess that's sort of the appeal of the genre but um they did do a lot of these remakes, though, into the 2000s of yeah. the 80s horror movies, like the Friday the 13th got a remake. I mean, Halloween's got got the Rob Zombie movies yeah. remade, yeah, which I have not seen. <laughs> um, did they love, Jack? I do love those ones. Even two? Even two. I think two's better okay. than one. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know. I haven't seen, I think I've only seen Rob Zombie 2 once. Like when it first came out, I don't think I ever saw it again. And every time I rewatch the first Halloween remake, I I'm just like more and more disappointed. It's like we didn't. I I don't think we needed the mythology or the like backstory of Michael and why he is the way he is. I don't need to see Dylan Sabara getting murdered with a giant log um oh yeah Megan Trainer's husband he, oh my god <laughs> wasn't he I, like a kid kid during those movies too he was a teen and like a okay. young I want to say he's playing like 14 in that movie okay that's still yeah young to get killed yeah by I mean, a he, gets killed, he gets killed by like eight-year-old Michael oh in the flash yeah, like, oh, yeah he gets killed yeah, have you have okay. you seen? That? No, I haven't. It is fucking insane that given how squeamish I am, I have actually seen House of a Thousand Corpses, which I found repulsive. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think that like kind of scared me away from the rest of them. Yeah. Rob Zombie. Oof. Yeah, well that that movie it like it was like split into two acts. Like the first half was. Michael growing up and like his fucked up home life with Sherry Moon Zombie being his mom and like I can't remember exactly what's going on. Is this one or two? This is one. Okay. Um, And then I mean he like kills the whole family in in this remake and then the second half of the movie is like the Laurie Strode story. Interesting. Yeah, it's like, and she's adopted, and like, like you. Oh, is she related to Michael? 
wait or did they change that for this one i can't remember i know they changed like i know they made them not related in the newest ones but i can't even remember what they did in the rob zombie one are they related i feel I like they, I, I, no yes they are because she's I the baby so. yeah, 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 yeah the baby that he, he kills the whole family except the baby and she's the baby right yes that i i quick google confirms yeah. that yeah, yeah yeah she's the she's the baby i think like he kills Jenny from Forrest Gump. He kills <laughs> Sherry Moon Zombie. He kills child, child Jenny, not not right. Yeah, who is in these Ryan. movies? I know Malcolm McDowell's in it, but yes. I don't oh think my god, Rob Zombie sure. ones are necessarily good. I just like, I think he at least like went for something a little more than trying to make like the Dave and Gordon Green ones don't really work for me a lot I appreciated what he did with the last one but I think like my problem is like it it posited itself as like the end of the story between Laurie and Michael which like I get like the twist of like turning that into something different but I don't like that the whole end was just like again we're revisiting Laurie and Michael like I feel like it really would have stuck the landing if we kind of would have like rode out that twist a little bit more to the end and really kind of like gave a big fuck you yeah Instead of making the last 20 minutes just like a quick tie up of the rest of this lore that's going on and the little like crowd surf Michael into like a trash compaction. <laughs> spoiler. Yeah, spoiler for the listeners. Yeah, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this episode has heard it. And I do read Wikipedia summaries for horror movies usually. So I, dropped, I, did, like, I knew what happened. at the box office. So everyone who's seen it <laughs> is seen it. I've seen it already. It yeah. is interesting that like a lot of the horror success stories that are going on right now are these original IP mid-budget spaces. Like there's a lot of innovation within the horror genre to actually like make money with new concepts right now. Like between Barbarian and Smile, like that's been- and Terrifier too, yeah. And Terrifier. I've, I've seen I've clips that seen, I don't want yeah, to talk about. I'm dying about. to, but I haven't. I, I haven't I, seen it either. I think like- I think these like horror movies like really if they're not a mainstream like franchise already they really rely on good word of mouth Mm -hmm. and the thing about Barbarian and Smile and like Terrifier with like the horror aspects of it are that they're getting really good word of mouth reviews like the people are really loving these movies and like they're doing critically Barbarian more than Smile is doing better but like the people are really enjoying what they're doing with these movies and I think like it's really saying a lot for like original concept horror. And I think in like more recent years, we've kind of fallen into this pit of like, quote unquote, elevated horror. Yeah. um, And like kind of deciding like what is good as a horror movie. And I think these new movies, like while they're good and I have enjoyed them, I think they're kind of pushing back against this idea of like elevated horror a little bit and kind of just giving you like good old fashioned fun horror movies like Like, smile is just like reminder of like the early 2000s again of just like silly like single concept let's push it for an hour and 30 minutes horror movies or you could do like something completely wackadoo like malignant which is a such a fun time like so great but also not that different from like i think one of y'all recommended bay of blood Mm -hmm. um which is a jollo i haven't seen but like there's not that much of a difference between like malignant and like 
Blood and Black Lace or The Bird with the Crystal Plumage or like the original Suspiria even. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of cool, weird gonzo stuff that doesn't make much sense, but it is like fun to look at, fun to take in. And just it's like weird. I don't know. I'm excited for like the James Wan horror, extended horror universe is just something I really enjoy in general though. Yeah, and I'm we'll all be seated for Megan. We will be like hope. I, I we need to rent out an entire theater for Megan. Like <laughs> I am so excited for that. The trailer memes got annoying pretty quickly, but like the initial glee I felt mm-hmm. in watching that and being like, "Oh, we are in for a like a ma level stupid." fun treat that I think will actually probably be sneakily good because like the creative team behind it knows what they're doing yeah totally I I couldn't be more excited for it like I I agree like it's I think I remember hearing about it and being like oh that sounds kind of dumb but then that trailer came out and it like (laughs) really changed my mind quickly yeah I mean, it definitely, I haven't seen Orphan First Kill yet, which I heard was great, but like, there's not that much of a difference between the premise of Megan and the premise of Orphan. It just like, I think killer dolls are kind of silly. Like I also saw Child's Play at a very young age, did not find it as scary as like I thought I would maybe, but like, I don't know, maybe that's just because I don't find dolls scary, but (laughs) Megan, the violence level seems like it will be satisfactory yeah have either of you watched chucky the show no i've heard it's really good though it's really fun like mm-hmm. i really enjoy it it's got really cool like art direction it's pretty gay and yeah just like really like there's always like one really fun kill in every episode and yeah chucky's an icon I can't wait to see Sutton Strack get killed. <laughs> oh my god! Oh. And I am so excited for that. Whenever I will have to, be. man. Yeah. Maybe this is the beginning of a pivot into acting for her. Like I could kind of see. Her. I <laughs> I did not think that there was a non Sutton Strackish quality to Mrs. Voorhees when I watched Friday the Thirteenth oh last night. <laughs> like. I think you put a camera on Sutton and she's the most interesting person like I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. But I think if you gave her a script, she would completely crumble. (laughs) Maybe this is the time to get her in some like naturalistic, like (laughs) get her in a Lynn Ramsey movie or something and see, (laughs) see what shakes loose. Like I, I would love, I would love her to be in it. I mean, like if Kyle could do Halloween and like, I've seen the Kyle scenes there are only a few there are That's only a what, few but she's one good. of my biggest complaints about halloween ends is that they don't tie up the kyle richards narrative yeah like, once again, <laughs> like she she just gets like carted off at the beginning or in the second one and then this one she has a scene and then you're just like done with her yeah she shows up she is on housewives makes it seem like she was in georgia all the time she she, like it made her seem like she was playing michael this time and i got a text from front of the pod michael eichner saying that they quote unquote made her a saloon girl so i was not super (laughs) 
she's like okay to hear that she's in one scene where she is like comforting laurie strode and her granddaughter um and then she shows up in a bar like pouring a drink she reads tarot in the bar and she like shows up to break up a fight and then you never see her again like she doesn't even show up in the end when the whole town congregates together i'm like maybe right. her face right <laughs> exactly like give her like how did they not film something for her to like to like include her in that scene do you think she got killed and they cut the kill scene or something I don't know. I just, I feel like it was somehow her choice. Like to not, like, I feel like I didn't want to die on screen. And so it didn't happen for whatever reason. Like, I don't know how else it wouldn't happen. But they should have. Like wasn't meant to be in this movie. I feel like oh. she was meant to end her story in Halloween Kills. And people, like, she was a kind of a success of that movie. And people yeah. really liked her in it. She yeah, was one of the right. few things people like, leaned into about that movie and I think they wrote her into this last one as like oh we'll give some sort of like thing we'll throw something at Kyle Richards to do but it was nothing substantial enough to like no. actually give her like a complete storyline yeah yeah because all the advanced press and all I mean she was everywhere the synergy the two <laughs> like you you would have yeah. thought she was the third lead of the movie and not this like rando Canadian guy who I literally never on, heard of. Even when they were on set, they were like taking photos of like the three of them together, like our three final girls. And yeah, I mean, I mean even Jamie Lee is mostly like a Carrie Bradshaw esque talking head for most of this. Uh, that's kind of, I mean, that sounds like not consistent with what they've been doing with the other movies but she's like... writing the worst memoir you've ever read in your yeah, life did you see... <laughs> I, I think it was a tweet that someone said like it's a memoir written in all concluding paragraphs <laughs> <laughs> and she speaks them aloud for most of like random it'll just like cut to scenes of like her writing her little book in her nook <laughs> yeah I mean she she's trying to give us takeaways I think you know, one thing I would have liked to have seen in Halloween Ends, a movie I have not seen yet, <laughs> is a scene where Kyle Richards is alone in her tavern saloon bar. And Michael shows up with a pair of scissors and he cuts off those bangs <laughs> and leaves. And that's it. She doesn't die. <laughs> she has said, like, um, she just has the forehead. Like, yeah. <laughs> Her fake bangs that she got made at a wig store. Uh, oh, um, so PC. I did tweet that I want a full trilogy directed by Kelly Reichardt about characters working at the saloon. Shut up. Oh, <laughs> I would. Wait, why are we calling it a saloon? It's not a saloon. It's just a local dive bar. But I know, but like, like, it's like with the, with the swinging door. I'm imagining like... her in like a tavern wench, like you know, milkmaid kind of outfit. She's like, what do you have? And Lori's like, Lori is just like covered in beer foam. Like that's the Lori picture I have more, baby. She's oh, my bar. <laughs> oh my God. I think we have to move on to our final segment. Actually, I do. If you guys have one off the wall slasher recommendation for people, what do you have? Ooh. Um, well, I'm going to say Slumber Party Massacre, because we didn't talk about it. It's a really 
really fun, quick, simple slasher that came out in the early 80s, um, directed by a woman. And yeah, it's written by a very famous like queer feminist theorist named Rita Mae Brown, which I did not know until reading the Criterion booklet about it. Yeah, and in it, I don't know. I feel like it really shows. Like, it's not, I don't think it's like groundbreaking in any way, but it's just such a fun movie. I watch it every season. I mm-hmm. never... I never get tired of it. Um, it's the it is the superior drill, <laughs> not not like the real one, Dahmer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my first thing would be if I think if you didn't like the remake of Suspiria, I think people need to revisit that movie. I think it is perfect. I think mm-hmm. it is up to bottom like really interesting and cool and Luca Guadagnino does so much fun stuff and I think it got a lot of hate because it wasn't a direct remake of its original movie and it goes really like off the walls mm-hmm. a little too heady for a lot of people but I think that movie is great my actual recommendation though would be um Chopping Mall <laughs> so good fun just because like it brings it's so 80s mall culture it's so campy and silly and the kills are insane Mm -hmm. and it's just like it keeps really good tension while also just being a lot of fun it's a lot of fun great recommendations really unexpected sorry what no i just said great recommendations like these are these are definitely off the wall fun i also would like to echo that the 2018 suspiria is perfect and like, I think people have come around to it, but I don't, th- you can't make the original Suspiria today in the same way that you cannot make the original Barbarella today because, like, things just look different now. But Sydney Sweeney's gonna try, baby. She's <laughs> gonna try, and she's currently, she's like in the Sahara with a camel right now, according to Instagram. So I'm, that's gonna be great. But, um, <laughs> no, like, it, like you can't do these like hyper saturated technicolor things these days because it just like no one's shooting like that, but unless you're like could. the love witch. But we need these movies back, like, yeah, I think, like, a quick sidebar I think a lot of modern horror and especially the blockbuster stuff looks kind of ugly in that it's like they have so much money and everything is so digital and it's so polished that it doesn't look like what I love about horror. I love practical effects, Mm -hmm. I love color. I love people who take the time to really like put in the extra effort. And I wish we saw a little bit more of that. I understand that it's like super expensive and like does not make enough money to be able to warrant it. But like, it just, it makes those movies iconic. Like it makes them look gorgeous. It makes them last this long. Whereas like, I think a lot of these modern movies are going to be lost to like the conversation because they just really, they can't stand out in the same way that they used to. No, I mean, not to like bring Ari Aster into this, but like one of the reasons why Hereditary and Midsummer hit so deeply, I think is because the effects are mostly practical effects. Like it feels so visceral when it's not just this like CGI head getting chopped off like Mm -hmm. devoting actual money like get a latex budget like get a fake blood budget like it just makes it look so much better like 
And even like a lot of these practical effects from the seventies and eighties are not actually that cheesy either. Like contrary to reputation, like we, we were going to watch shopping mall or um, not shopping mall. I'm sorry. We were going to watch the slumber party massacre on Friday night. Um, my friend was like, we, I, do, I don't want to watch something with a power drill. <laughs> so we watched this Kyle McLaughlin 1987 like crime thriller slash body horror movie called the hidden that was so fun and had some truly gnarly special effects that i was like yeah like this is this is it's so much more real and visceral when you can like sort of see someone's hand moving the puppet a little bit because there's this like tactile element that makes it feel like icky i don't know yeah. Have either of you seen Brain Damage? No. no. Um, I can't remember what the director's name is, but he did like Frankenhooker and Basket oh. Case mm-hmm. also. And I just watched this for the first time the other night and it blew my mind. It like the practical effects are so good. Some of the deaths are just incredible. It's just like this creature that latches on to the main character's neck and like basically like injects him with like his juice which (laughs) is some kind of drugs and makes him either kill people or the like creature kills people I don't know it's really really fun I highly recommend that too and I would consider it a slasher this has definitely turned into a plug for Criterion Channel's 80s horror collection because that is also on it this month. And, oh, uh, if, if you are a Criterion subscriber, go watch uh, all the movies we just watched or <laughs> we just mentioned. Slumber Party Massacre is also on it right now. So definitely go check that out. Okay, let's move on to our final segment. We are going to play a spooktacular edition of Tear the Community Apart. Oof. The rules are very simple. I've picked two songs and you're going to tell me which one is better. Great. So these two songs are from alt pop girlies of gay fame (laughs) who have released in the past month. They, these two songs were released as advanced singles before the album came out and have had time to marinate in the public consciousness and both have their fans. And maybe some have their haters too. I don't know. Which song is better? No One Dies From Love by Tove Lo mm-hmm. or The Loneliest Time by Carly Rae Jepsen featuring Rufus Wainwright? Oh, I mean, I know my answer. Honestly, No One Dies For Love is like, I think it's one of the best pop songs of the year, to be honest. Like I, I still go back to it all the time. Um. I saw her at the Lala show and I, I, or the Lala after show and lost my mind when she did it. It was like a really, really great experience. And I don't know, I love the loneliest time and I love the album too. We didn't really talk about that, but I, and I, and I would say I like it more than Midnight's. I don't think that's a controversial opinion either amongst like the gays. Mm -hmm. Um, Love that song but it, it's definitely a toe blow for me. Jack, what say you? Yeah, I'm in the same boat here. Um, I am not like always on board. It like, it took a while for Miss 
Tuve Lu, I guess, <laughs> with me. Um, like, not a lot of her music really hit for me in the same way that it did people as she was, like, coming up. Like, obviously, I think, like, Disco Tits is one of, like, the greatest songs ever written. Um, but this song, like, No One Dies From Love actually really did click for me. I think it's, like, one of the strongest songs of the year. I think it's the strongest single on that album, um, on a pretty strong album. The Loneliest Time is probably, eh, it's not my least favorite of the Carly singles, but it's definitely not my favorite. I just, it feels, it feels like something from this like bygone disco album that she buried underneath her house or whatever that story is. Yeah. It feels a bit out of place on this album, but I mean, the whole album kind of feels a little, it's not a attempt to really be cohesive. It's more like a collection of songs in my opinion. Um, and it's not my favorite. And I really don't, I don't like how much men we're hearing on this album from Carly Rae Jepsen. It's a lot a of men. too much masculine energy. <laughs> I don't know. I like that much. With this album, I think it's fun. I think there's good moments here. It's definitely not my favorite of hers, but that's okay. Like she doesn't need to be hitting the ball out of the park every time. She just needs to keep me having fun. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I I agree with all the points made above. Um, I would go so far as to say, "No One Die from Dies from Love" is the best pop song of the year so far. So good. It's so good. Instant classic. Like one of the few pop singles that's come out this year where I've been like, oh, this is instant classic. Like, yeah. And I think Dirt Femme as an album is my third favorite pop album of the year after I'm still deciding between Renaissance and Motomami <laughs> in that top two in pop, but like Dirt Femme's definitely slight step down from those two. Yeah, going along with what Jack said, like I she was always like a singles artist yeah. for me. I I've liked many of her singles, but like have never felt like a connection to any of her entire albums until this one. And like I think it's like kind of like pretty perfect pop album. Like there aren't really any low notes. I I even like like I think a lot of people don't really like the ballads and like, like true romance and stuff not well true romance because that I mean that one's been around for a while but yeah for the, the first aid kit song which isn't oh really, I, I like, like that song. and then there's but then there's the other song where she's like singing um yeah I can't remember what it's called but I don't know I like it I I think it's like a no skips album for me I would agree with that. I think like attention whore, pineapple slice, grapefruit, especially that's like it's a really good like strategy. damn yeah, yeah that's really really good stuff. Yeah, Carly's tough for me because I am a fan. I'm a longtime fan. She has made the same album five times in a row now. <laughs> what are we gonna do about this? I don't. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I feel it, for me, I agree that it's not necessarily the most cohesive, but I feel like she's giving us a lot of the sounds that we like from, like, all of her eras. And I think she doesn't want to be doing that. 
I think this album would be so. Well, I think like I think this album would be so much more interesting if she really leaned into like the Western Wind, the like Rostam and Bullion collabs. Like the hold on, I'm playing. I'm not off book with like all these song titles yet on her. So let me just verify. Like go find yourself or whatever is really interesting and cool. Like Ben's is kind of cool and interesting. I think the moments where she really leans into the like disco under the house dedicated side B kind of like fluff are the weakest moments. Like loneliest time is like perfectly fine. Um, definitely does not need Rufus Wainwright on it. Uh. And I don't know. It's just like disco by numbers. Like and shooting star, I think is like not you're not into shooting star no i think it's one of the worst songs she's ever put out <laughs> really i would probably put it in the around the middle for me on the album it's definitely not like a highlight but i don't know i like it my it's- i i really love sideways and wish it wasn't only two minutes long yeah like every time it comes on it's like ooh, i'm vibing and <laughs> then it's over but yeah I, I, I wish there was a little more of that. I love I love a mid-tempo moment from her. And I wish I wish that there was like more of it on the album. I mean, I like a slow moment from her. I think all of that is in my oh. top five Carly songs. Like potential, like who's marrying this? But like a wedding, a potential wedding song for me. Like that's how much I like really resonate with it. I don't think she's great at picking songs for albums. And like, maybe that's label stuff. Maybe that's just management. I Or maybe it's just bad instincts. Like she always, she writes like 500 songs, right. picks 15 out of a hat, and then picks another 15 out of the hat for side B. If we get a side B for this though, I'm going to be kind of right. pissed because I don't right. think this one merits a side B. She's already t- about it there's like 65 songs in contention for side b Um, i i think this has the potential to be a super strong side b i think like there's glimmers of really good stuff here and i think a side b could really maybe bring the good of this album to light in a way that works a lot more for me um i I know a lot of people kind of ride for her side B's more than some of her albums. I think it's particularly with Dedicated. I do not feel that way at all. Uh, I think Emotion and Dedicated are much stronger albums than their B-side collections. But I feel like this album has potential for a B-side collection that's actually stronger. Because I feel like because she's like spanning so many genres, I feel like there's a lot more options to choose from with the side B here. I I can I can get behind that line of thinking. Same. I'm just optimistic here. I don't know. Well, it's not like it's bad. Like the loneliest time is a perfectly nice pop album. She has set very unrealistic expectations for herself. And I would like I'm not a huge dedicated fan. Like there are pockets of it that I really like, especially the mid-tempo moments, like everything he needs. And I mean, talk about a good Jock Antonoff production, Want You In My Room, also top five Carly song. Like, there are a lot of the rest of it, totally fine for me. Emotion is such a 10 out of 10 classic, though. And Kiss is like a 9 out of 10 
classic too. Like she really came in hot and it's just tough to like maintain that, especially because I don't think she wants to be making dance music anymore. No. Yeah, you can kind of feel it in that too. And like the reason why she kind of scrapped this whole disco album, like I feel like it really just wasn't the vibe she was really feeling herself go into in this like age that she's in. But I think there's potential for her to like lean into a new direction. This album kind of feels like a stepping off point away from that dance into something new. And I feel like whatever comes next out of this is really going to be something great. I don't Mm -hmm. know again if this is me just being like optimistic about Carly, um, but I'm really hopeful about like what's to come from her. And I think she still has it. I think she just needed to like have a, transitional little flop era before she comes back up yeah it's definitely I mean we've said this before on the podcast but like it's nice to be at this kind of mid-tier of pop stardom because you can flop softly and still innovate and be allowed to do that like we're not at Katy Perry desperation levels yet where right two flops in a row maybe even three I don't know where we're at these days like and it's it's we're we're really struggling like Carly can soft flop Lord can soft flop all these people can soft flop but like let's like you know come back swinging solar power power is a perfect album I'm sorry <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that, but I like it. <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting misfire with a ton of good moments. Mm-hmm. I think it will have a critical reevaluation in a few years and yeah. really hit for people. I don't think it's something that works on first listen. I I I mean I I'm not I'm not a Jack Antonoff hater. I'm not. I love a lot of his work and I think he does a very good job of reframing his collaborators in interesting new lights. But he needs to go get a little bit more inspiration somewhere. Because my like he needs to go find himself or whatever. Maybe even just go to the guitar center and get a few more instruments. Like we are hearing the same drum pads on every song like midnights has the same percussion section on every song yeah and it's samey go buy a glockenspiel get a marimba get something we need something even like one of those like get some like random guy from like buckfuck west virginia to like play spoons let's do that <laughs> something anyway i don't know what that as long as he keeps <laughs> pushing Lana Del Rey to these artistic peaks, aside oh, from Snow on the Beach, I'm going to support him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not saying anything negative about Snow on the Beach, but know that like <laughs> I'm conveying something with my mind and my tone. That <laughs> does, no words here, but we're thinking. We're not getting so. tonight. Nope. <laughs> Um, I do think we have to wrap up, unfortunately, but Pierce, Jack, thank you so, so much for being here. This was a true delight. Thanks for having us. It was so much fun. A Halloween treat, to be sure. Boo. 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 (laughs) Um, Where can people find you on social media if you would like to be found? Jack, go ahead. Um, Sure. (laughs) I'm on Twitter at 
Ho, Anna, H-O-E-A-N-N-A, Newsome, um, and on Instagram at Jack underscore Mazio, M-A-Z-Z-E-O. Um, I have a Twitter. I don't really use it and unless I feel like it every now and then, but it's at M-Y-S-P-I-E-R-C-E, MySpierce. And my Instagram is my name, Pierce Richter. Incredible. Um, you can find me where? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at FKA Pigs with a Z, on Instagram at Drew Haskins with Z's, and follow at Crisis with Pod on Twitter and Instagram for direct updates from the podcast. Um, if you are listening to this on Wednesday, the 26th, when this episode comes out, uh, tune in at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central to Girls Room on Spotify Live. Me and my co-host Julia Gray will be recapping the first two episodes of Girls Season 2, aka the Donald Glover episodes, aka the worst episodes of Girls, with <laughs> a special guest, um, a writer from The Atlantic, Caitlin Tiffany. So everyone get very excited for that and catch up with old episodes with George Ferris and Catherine Cohen that uh, were released two weeks ago. Okay, bye. Bye. Happy Halloween. Like what you just heard? Go to the show notes and whatever podcast app you're listening to this on and click the donation link.